You are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode four. Today's topic is 2OA or not 2OA. And my guest today is Aisa Ekango. She's an advisor who works with research and publishing support at the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University. Aisa Ekango, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. So today we are talking about why researchers would choose not to provide open access to their publications. There are, of course, several reasons, but I'd love for you, Aisa, to tell us and uh, maybe sort some of those arguments for us. So what are the main reasons uh, for that kind of a choice? I think the main problem is that many researchers don't realize how many people uh, don't have access to scientific publications. Um, often uh, we hear that, uh, well, someone may say, well, who needs access to scholarly literature? All my colleagues have access and uh, I have always been able to read whatever I want. And they then don't realize that they only can access the literature through their library subscriptions and they are not aware of the fact that uh, subscriptions subscription prices have been rising uh, the past 30 years and that uh, more and more academic libraries are cancelling their subscriptions, which means that their colleagues around the world uh, are missing access to the journals. And also there is the general public who are not affiliated with an academic institution who want um, who want access to the literature and who yeah, have the need to, to read. Okay. Are there any other common reasons? The reasons... Uh, vary in accordance with the mode of open access. There are there are two main um, ways one can provide open access to uh, to one's publications, and one of them is publishing open access uh, at an open access journal or publishing an open access monograph, and the other way is uh, archiving one's publication in an open repository. And so, when you talk about publishing open access, then reasons not to publish an open access article would be some considerations around prestige and then some some issues uh, with uh, publishing charges and uh, also uh, some issues with with quality or some misconceptions about the relation between open access and quality of publications and that is a misconception uh, yeah, well, the last one is a is a misconception, yes, and and also the the two the two first ones also have some some degrees of misconceptions in them. We can we can talk in more detail uh, uh, about them. But uh, um, when it comes to uh, open access and quality, we do sometimes, and by we I mean uh, open access advisors or people who work with open access at the University Library of Tromsø, we do sometimes hear that well, people saying well. Open access journal, what, what is it? Does it mean, is it peer reviewed at all? Uh, does it mean that it's um, a lower ranked journal that will accept anything you send there? And well, the first answer is, of course, uh, no, it doesn't mean that. It's a scholarly journal with peer review and quality is not, uh, um, does not coincide with, uh, with the type of access for a journal or with the type of business model. There are subscription journals of good and bad quality and there are open access journals of good and bad quality. 
So what about prestige? I know that's a huge concern for many researchers. Yes, uh, something that has to do with prestige is one of the main concerns uh, for researchers. And, um, well, for example, a researcher might say that, okay, well, I would like to uh, publish open access, but there are no prestigious journals in my field, uh, prestigious open access journals in my field. And, uh, and then, so we have to ask them then, okay, well, are you sure? And what does actually a prestigious journal mean? What, uh, what do you put into the notion of prestige? Um, and there are, um, the academic community thinks about prestige and prestigious journals in different ways. And some say this is, uh, a prestigious journal has a high impact factor or a high rejection rate. And those are wrong understandings of prestige because they can be manipulated and impact factor is a flawed metric, a very, very bad proxy for quality. Um, others say um, a prestigious journal uh, is a journal where the editorial board is doing good work, where peer review is rigorous uh, and the publications that are, uh, the research that is published there uh, is of good quality, which means that it's methodologically th sound, that it's reproducible. So these are the acceptable notions that that um, of prestige. So if there are no open access journals that satisfy those last three criteria of prestige, the quality of publications, the editorial work and uh, uh, quality of peer review, then okay, you can look for a prestigious closed subscription journal of your choice, but uh, you can still self-archive uh, a manuscript version of your publication. You, you can still um, provide open access to a version of your article or monograph in an open repository. And this is the same solution for, for, for researchers who are, who are worried about their CV. For example, early career researchers who say, well, open access is, um, is a good idea, but I cannot risk my career. I'm still evaluated by promotion committees or ten tenure committees. I want to have a good CV. I know that impact factor is a bad measure, but not all committees know this. And so and we also say to them that, well, do what you have to do for your career but at least self-archive. And by the way, about this, uh, do what you have to do, uh, things are not that bad, actually. They're beginning to change. And there is the San Francisco Declaration of Research Assessment that institutions and uh, governments and funders uh, have signed and more are signing it, uh, where research is supposed to be evaluated for what it is, not for where it's published. So there is hope for... Um, young researchers as well. But take us uh, through this. What is uh, self-archiving? Um, self-archiving is uh, providing open access to your work via an open access repository. Institutional repository, subject repository. And uh, this is something that uh, researchers can do themselves independent of where they publish. If they publish in an uh, in a subscription closed access journal, they can still archive some version of their work 
submitted manuscript, accepted manuscript, maybe even published version of their work in an open repository. And then those readers who cannot afford to pay for subscription to a journal, they can access the researcher's work through an open repository. Is this possible for all uh, subscription-based journals? Um, around 80, maybe more percent of sub subscription journals uh, allow some form of self-archiving. And um, those researchers who have concerns about self-archiving, they the most common reason they give is that they are not sure whether the journal or the publisher allows it. And, well, most journals do allow it. Um, so what the researcher has to do is just to upload a version of his work to, well, for Norwegian researchers, it's Kristin, um, and then the library will take it from there. So, of course, we want researchers to be aware of um, the publishers and journals' uh, self-archiving policies, but they don't have to. <laughs> the library will check, so um, the research a researcher will not do anything illegal by uploading a manuscript to Kristin. Um, libraries will check the policy of the journal and if it's allowed then it will be published uh, well not published but made uh, made openly available in an open repository uh, if it's not allowed then no it won't be and uh, and we also generally um, recommend to uh, to upload the accepted manuscript version because if uh, the journal allows to publish to if the journal allows to um, to self-archive the published version of its article, then the library will find this version and upload it themselves. But if it doesn't, if only the accepted manuscript is allowed, then it's only the author who has this manuscript version. So it will save uh, save some working time and uh, email emailing back and forth explaining this. So is self-archiving a loophole to do open access and, and won't uh, subscription-based journals then change their policies? Actually, the publishers have been uh, opening up more. And uh, now also uh, more publishers are becoming more, well, less restrictive when it comes even to submitted manuscripts or to preprints. Um, there are restrictive publishers uh, as well, and uh, they tend to um, they tend to impose long embargo periods, saying that yes, you can make a version of your work openly available in a repository, but only after um, two or four years. Are there any uh, other concerns when it comes to self archiving? Yes, uh, we have um, heard. Some researchers say that, of course, I won't self-archive because this is double publishing. But uh, making your work available in an open repository is not double publishing. Um, the the metadata for, for an uh, archived um, manuscript or an article uh, contain the original place of publication. They refer to, to the journal that has published the article. Uh, so an open repository does not does not claim any publish publisher st status. So this is a misconception. Another one is um, researchers think that this this is too much work. But then again, um, it's um, it's just locating the the document on your computer and uploading it to Christian, and this is it for the researcher. 
Um, and also there are um, researchers who say that they don't like to distribute their work in manuscript form. They say, well, I have published, um, have published an article, it's there, it's available in the journal, and it's there that it should be read. So I don't, don't know to what degree uh, this can be a valid argument. Um, for some researchers, uh, this kind of um, aesthetic issues are important. But um, you, you have to think here, uh, what is more important to you? Is it important that people read your work? Or is it more important that people read your work in a pretty format? Because, again, not all, not everybody, or not uh, all of your potential readers have access to the journal where you have published. I'm guessing that availability is a concern as well. There's not all the scientific fields that have a wide range of open access journals. So what is their option? They do the same. <laughs> they self-archive, publish in closed journals, but self-archive then in open repositories. And also they can contribute to developing the, the publishing field themselves. Maybe they can start uh, an open access journal um, in collaboration with uh, with an institutional publishing service or um, or a professional uh, a commercial publisher even. Um, so they can they can contribute with their work to already existing open access journals if they if they see that um, well there is an open access journal that has a, uh, has a, a good editorial board for example but because it's so the field is so small. The journal is, and the journal is still young. It's uh, still struggling to attract manuscripts. Maybe uh, researchers can help to develop this open access open access journal. Okay. Are there any other reasons uh, we should address? If we can return to publishing charges, for example, some researchers may have an ideological stand and say that uh, they do not want to publish in this open access journal that requires a publishing charge because they don't want to commercialize uh, scholarly publishing. And um, here they have to become aware of the huge sums of money that libraries and academic institutions are paying to commercial publishers for subscriptions. And um, publishing charges make the business of scholarly publishing transparent because when a journal states its publishing charges, everybody sees it, what the prices are. Whereas when libraries subscribe and negotiate, they have non-disclosure clauses. So a library in Norway does not have any way of knowing legally what, uh, what a library in Sweden or even another library in Norway is paying for its subscriptions. Okay, so to sum up, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to providing open access to publications, but also some reasons that are valid and that have and that we have to take seriously. Any final uh, thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, yeah, some concerns are valid reasons for which there exist some solutions as well as we have talked about. Um, what we would like researchers to remember that it may be frustrating to be a researcher in, in today's um, scholarly publishing system. There are many uh, 
There are many requirements from different sides. There are institutional requirements, governmental uh, funders' requirements, and then there are uh, concerns about CV, career, and evaluation committees. So researchers may think that they they just have to they just have to play along in the system, but I would like them to realize or remember that they're not just a, a tiny insignificant cog in the machine, but they are the producer and the consumer of publications. They're producers and consumers of publications, the thing that, that drives this whole scholarly publishing system. So they have, uh, they have the power to change the system. Of course, not all of the responsibility is on them to change the system because there are many agents involved, but at the same time, they're not, they're not a small, insignificant part. So they have to find the middle and understand that they can also do something to change it and make, uh, make the publishing uh, world and the scientific world better for themselves to be in. Aisa Egangov, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, everybody. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Just a quick reminder, this podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Please visit our website opensciencetalk.com to get in contact with us or visit or check out the library's Twitter page. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our webpage so you get notified when the next episode drops. Thanks for listening.